in a small hall in the city of Liverpool, England, during the winter of 1925-26. A group of missionaries destined to various parts of Great Britain and the European continent were gathered to receive counsel and instruction from Elder James E. Talmadge, the European Mission President. Part of the counsel given included this cautionary advice. Since you have come from modest, Western, uh, modest-sized Western communities in America, you will no doubt observe some customs and methods which differ from those you are used to, which may cause you to want to criticize them. Be careful that you do not. Remember, you are the foreigner in a foreign land. You are their guests. You will soon find that such customs and methods are good. They are the results of proven experiences it is better to observe with a learning eye. Having been one of those missionaries assigned to the Netherlands during my time spent there, I found that the counsel given was wise. From my arrival till my departure, I had learned much from my observations. I had visited many of its cities, observed their clean surroundings, the picturesque buildings, the many well-maintained waterways and canals. Above all, I experienced an association with a happy people. I observed many people proceeding to the large and beautiful churches on the Sabbath day. The people were cheerful and prosperous, living under a parliamentary system of government. I learned of their history. We as missionaries were permitted to freely move about in our proselyting efforts. Here was a nation which had fought eighty long years with much sacrifice to gain religious freedom. Here was a nation which had close ties with America, for had they not given refuge to the pilgrims who came to avoid religious persecution in England and after a few years moved on to the shores of America? There is no doubt that many people from the Netherlands immigrated to America, and with their love of liberty and their faith in God contributed much to some of the American colonies who established themselves to worshiping God according to their consciences. The thought has occurred to me that the father of our country, George Washington, was not unaware of the struggle of the European nations and Netherlands included in, in breaking the bonds of bigotry. Certainly, as well-tutored as he was, it would be unlikely for him not to be informed of a nation which had fought 80 years in the effort. He had very strong feelings about the subject of religion. In rereading in a required assignment of my high school days, which was a study of his farewell address delivered to Congress in 1796, I am impressed with his forthrightness. May I call attention to some of his thoughts on the subject? He said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness. <clears throat> these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens, the mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and cherish them. Let us simply be asked, where is the security for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths, which are the instruments of investigation in the courts of justice? And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, 
reason and experience both forbid us that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. It is substantially true that virtue or morality is a necessary spring of popular government. The rule extends with more or less force to every species of free government. Who is a sincere friend to it can look with indifference upon the attempts to shake the foundation of the fabric." End of quote. Surely the happiness and felicity of the people of the Netherlands was commensurate to their application of the powers of religion and virtue. Associated with this nature of people, I observed their sensitivity to cleanliness. As we proselyted from door to door, we became aware of the areas where people lived. They took extreme care to keep their dwellings and their surroundings in excellent condition. Never did they allow debris to accumulate in their streets. Never did they allow their refuse receptacles to remain standing in their streets. The law prohibited it. That was 50 years ago. I was pleased to learn that this sensitivity still prevails according to a recent newspaper article which reads in part, The first thing any American notices in Holland is what's missing. As usual, of course, the dirt is missing, and the tin cans, and pages of old newspapers blowing in the gutters. The drunks are also missing, and the wine bottles in the alleyways. The half-starved dogs, the odors that ought to emanate from so much slow-running water. The Dutch have always known what to do about pollution, waste, and ugliness. They forbid it. Though their dwellings might have been modest, extreme care was taken to keep them clean. Frequently on our morning tours, we would find the women polishing the brass on the doors, scrubbing the entrances to their homes, and in most instances, extending the scrubbing to the sidewalks. One need not ask why, as it was obvious that the custom was prompted by the knowledge that if you walk a clean street, you will not collect dirt and impurities to carry into the home. Perhaps the same idea might as well be applied to the mind. A continuous scrubbing to wipe out the impurities that might enter into it so that the soul might not be contaminated. As I observed this custom of cleanliness, I was quick to remember the why of the admonition given to me in my boyhood days as I sought to neglect the daily routine of washing the hands and face. Cleanliness is next to godliness, came the gentle reminder from my parents. I heard that so often I thought it was scripture, and it was not until later that in life that I found it to be a statement in a sermon of John Wesley. And I'd like to inject in your minds here, there is indeed an alliance between physical cleanliness and spiritual cleanliness. Just as the clean body, clean home, and clean surroundings stay the spread of disease, so the clean mind, clean thoughts, and acts stay the spread of evil. Now, a progressive statement from the Hebrew Fathers gives us an indication of how spiritual cleanliness might be obtained, it reads, The doctrines of religion are resolved into carefulness, carefulness into vigorousness, vigorousness into guiltlessness, guiltlessness into abstemiousness, abstemiousness into cleanliness, and cleanliness into godliness. The purpose of the scripture or doctrines of religion are to keep people from dwindling in unbelief and to ultimately help to bring their souls into a state of cleanliness that he may dwell with his Father in heaven in the eternities. It is a step-by-step process. Paul refers to the doctrines in his epistle to the Hebrew saints in that specific manner. Therefore, not leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ, 
let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and we will go on to perfection. But a more specific presentation of the doctrine is set forth in the beginning. When God spoke to Adam, this is the scripture. Wherefore, teach it unto your children, that all men everywhere must repent, or they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. For no unclean thing can dwell there, or dwell in his presence. Therefore, I give unto you a commandment, to teach these things freely unto your children, saying, that by reason of transgression cometh the fall, which fall bringeth death, and inasmuch as ye were born into the world by water and blood and spirit, which I have made, and so became a dust of living soul, even so ye must be born again into the kingdom of heaven of water and the spirit, and become cleansed by blood, even the blood of mine only begotten, that ye might be sanctified from all sin and enjoy the words of eternal life in this world and eternal life in the world to come, even immortal glory. For by the water ye keep the commandment, by the Spirit ye are justified, and by the blood ye are sanctified. A religious doctrine to mean something to anyone must have the solid foundation of being true. If it is built on myth, superstition, supposition, imagination, or on the commandments of men, it will not have substance. We may be concerned today with the decline of morality and integrity in our modern society. But when the ideas of faith becomes principles without works instead of a living fountain, when religion is only membership in a church for status purposes, what else can be expected? It is time for all mankind to ask of God, since he is our creator. What do you require of us? The answer to that question has been given. Jesus taught what his father taught, that all men must repent or they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God, for no unclean thing can dwell there. He taught the plan of salvation and encouraged mankind to come follow me. He said, My doctrine is not mine but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. The doctrine taught by the Savior was, has never faltered. The gospel is the governing principle of the individual. It was designed for him to give certainty to his life and to explain the purpose of his existence and eternal nature of it. Through adherence to its laws and ordinances, he may become a citizen of the kingdom of God. The principles of progressive steps to be taken were alluded to in Paul's words previously presented. The progressive process to be followed might well be as outlined in the words of the Hebrew fathers. They can be put to the test. They will, in fact, when applied, bring a person to that state of cleanliness demanded by our Heavenly Father. Using the doctrine heretofore recited from the scripture of God's presentation to Adam, it behooves all to carefully study the doctrine in the sense as is admonished by the ancient prophet Moroni. He presents a formula which can be recommended for all scripture study. Behold, I would exhort you that when ye shall read these things, that ye would remember how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men, from the creation of Adam even down unto the time that ye shall receive these things, and ponder it in your hearts. I would exhort you that ye would ask God 
the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. I so witness and testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brothers and sisters and friends of the radio and television listening audience, prior to the birth of the Savior, many prophecies were given foretelling his coming to earth. The early prophets revealed the events which would precede his birth and described his earthly mission, thus enabling the people of the world to recognize him as their Savior, Lord, and God. Although the house of Israel possessed a written record of numerous prophecies concerning Christ's early life. Still, the Eternal Father sent a special messenger, John the Baptist, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The predictions of the early prophets concerning Christ's birth, life, and ministry were fulfilled. And those who sincerely believed were prepared to accept and follow him. This being true, we can reliably expect the happenings prophesied of concerning his second coming will also be fulfilled. Toward the close of Christ's earthly ministry, his disciples, being concerned about his teachings of the end of the world, went to him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. The Savior then explained to his disciples the signs and happenings which will occur prior to his second coming. These are recorded in the 24th chapter of Matthew and warrant a careful study. Jesus informed his disciples that iniquity shall abound, false Christs shall deceive many, false prophets shall arise, showing great signs and wonders to deceive the very elect, and great tribulation shall prevail. There will be wars rumors of wars, nations rising against nations, famines, pestilence, earthquakes, and the abomination of desolation as spoken of by Daniel the prophet. The scriptural prophecies of the events that are to precede Christ's second coming serve as a guide and a warning to all inhabitants of the earth. Shouldn't we listen to these warnings as we witness the signs being fulfilled, as John the Baptist was sent prior to Christ's birth to prepare the way for his ministry, so did God send a prophet to usher in this last dispensation of his gospel in preparation for the second coming of our Savior. The prophet Joseph Smith testified to a doubting world 
that Jesus is the Christ, the very Son of God. The Lord, in a Latter-day Revelation, reaffirmed the tribulations, desolations, calamities, and destructive forces of the last days. He warned, And in that day shall be heard of wars and rumors of wars, and the whole earth shall be in commotion. The love of men shall wax cold, and iniquity shall abound. Men standing in that generation shall not pass until they shall see an overflowing scourge, for a desolating sickness shall cover the land. And there shall be earthquakes in divers places and many desolations. Yet men will harden their hearts against me, and they will take up the sword and against one another, and they will kill one another. For many years there have been wars somewhere in the world, and the constant rumors of wars are of great concern to many nations today. Nations are rising against nations. There are unstable governments. Some have fallen. There is a continuing breakdown in the integrity, honesty, and righteousness of political, governmental, and business leaders. The world is ripening in iniquity. There are many who have no compunctions against deceiving and leading people into the paths of darkness and sin. There are those who falsely claim to be the Christ, or prophets, and by their cunning and deceit draw many followers. Famine and pestilences persist. Earthquakes are increasing in number and intensity. The same is true of other disasters of nature. Satan has great power over men, and indeed there are those who outwardly claim to be his disciples and worship him. The world today is filled with men who have forsaken or forgotten God. They are seeking to change his laws by exercising their own mortal judgment. Perhaps to them, God is not up to date. They forget that God's commandments are eternal and unchangeable. I ask this question. Is it possible for the created ever to be wiser than the Creator? Our courts of justice are substituting man-made laws for God's laws and commandments. God is not dead. He remains the same forever, resolute, firm, unchanging, but full of love and compassion for his children. The power of evil is opposed to the power of God. Satan currently wields great power in the affairs of men and of nations. If the leaders of nations follow their own course, misunderstandings and problems will increase bringing even greater contention and strife. The Lord instructed the prophet Joseph Smith, Prepare ye, prepare ye for that which is to come, for the Lord is nigh. In this last dispensation of his work, he cautioned, Prepare yourselves for the great day of the Lord. Let us be sure we thoroughly understand the most important things we can do to prepare ourselves for our Lord's second coming to earth. 
and by our obedience and faithfulness escape his punishments. The following are important considerations. We must set our lives and homes in order. This means a searching of our souls and admittance of wrongdoing and repentance where needed. It means keeping all of God's commandments. It means loving our neighbor. It means living an exemplary life. It means being good husbands and wives. It means teaching and training our children in the ways of righteousness. It means being honest in all our doings, business, and home. The gospel of Jesus Christ to all the peoples of the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the peoples of the world, the Lord has said, I will hasten my work in its time. There is an urgency in his work. Time is getting short. The sense of urgency is promoting the Lord's kingdom in these last days does not arise out of panic, but out of a desire to move swiftly and surely to establish and strengthen his kingdom among, among all people who are seeking the light and truth of the gospel, which is God's plan of life for all his children. God will hasten his work by opening the heavens and sending heavenly messengers to his prophets to warn his children to prepare themselves to receive their Lord at his second coming. The Christ has emphasized it is the eleventh hour and the last time that I shall send laborers into my vineyard. In setting up his Latter-day Church, the Savior has affirmed it is the last time his kingdom shall be established upon the earth. The prophet Daniel, speaking of God's work in the last days, revealed that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, nor left to another people, and it shall stand forever. This dispensation of the gospel, then, is the last. The Lord has never indicated it. his church of the latter days would fail. God will ultimately triumph over all his enemies and his arch enemy. Satan. I it will definitely benefit each of us to be on the Lord's side by keeping his laws and commandments. During these perilous last days, our responsibility to give warning to the world is vital. The Savior said, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. To meet this challenge of sending forth more laborers into his harvest of souls, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is calling an increased number of missionaries into all the world to preach the everlasting gospel of Christ to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. The Lord cautioned his people, and again, Verily I say unto you, The coming of the Lord draweth nigh, and it overtaketh the world as a thief in the night. Also he said, For behold, the Lord God has sent forth the angel crying through the midst of heaven, saying, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make his path straight, for the hour of his coming is nigh. 
How are, you, how are we to meet this challenge of readying church members and the peoples of the world for Christ's second coming and being sure they are prepared to receive him? Listen to this warning and counsel. And the arm of the Lord shall be revealed. And the day cometh that they who will not hear the voice of the Lord, neither the voice of his servants, neither give heed to the words of the prophets and apostles, shall be cut off from among the people. For they have strayed from mine ordinances and have broken mine everlasting covenant. They seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way and after the image of his own God, whose image is in the likeness of the world and whose substance is that of an idol. Again he said, What I, the Lord, have spoken, I have spoken, and I excuse not myself. And though the heavens and the earth pass away, my word shall not pass away, but shall all be fulfilled whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. The Lord has placed prophets, apostles, and teachers in his church to interpret and point the way for his people in both spiritual and temporal matters. The rights, authority, and priesthood powers of these leaders stem from the Savior himself. Safety lies in following the counsel of divinely appointed leadership. We in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are blessed to have a living prophet among us, President Spencer W. Kimball. I bear witness to his divine calling. He is my teacher, my leader, and my exemplar. I sustain and uphold him by my faith and prayers. I have complete and unwavering confidence in his prophetic calling and divine leadership. His character is upright, his mind alert, his counsel wise, his judgment sound, his vision clear. He has a great love for all people. He is their friend and considerate of their needs. We will never go wrong as a people if we follow the Lord's prophet, who is also our prophet, and heed his teachings, counsel, and personal example. The Savior gives further knowledge of the last days. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts are over, overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass 
and to stand before the Son of Man. Let us all, my brothers and sisters, discern prophecy fulfillment, set in order our own homes, and be prepared for this important day. And finally, let us meet the challenge to make ready a people for the Lord's second coming. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My brothers and sisters, from earliest times to the present, our Father in heaven has entered into covenants with his children. And he has promised to bless his children if they will be true and faithful in keeping those covenants. My message this morning will focus on some of those covenants and blessings. From the scriptures we learn that all of us existed as spirits, literally spirit children of our Father in heaven, before we were born in the flesh. All were not of equal intelligence, and some were more obedient and faithful than others. And as a result, they merited special blessings and were chosen for very special missions here on earth. Now, from the scriptures, we can identify some of these chosen individuals, starting with Michael, who is referred to as the archangel, one of high rank in the spirit world. He was chosen to be Adam, the first man, to stand under the Father and the Son forever as the head of the human family. Others of the chosen were Seth, the most faithful of Adam's sons after the death of the righteous Abel, Enoch, through whom the Lord promised would come Noah and the Messiah, and who also promised that his posterity should remain while the earth should stand. Another one was Noah, who was chosen to be the father of the human race here on earth. Or the second of the father, second father of the race after the flood. Shem, the chosen son of Noah, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now in the midst of idolatry, Abraham continued to worship the true God and proved true in every test the Lord gave him. Therefore the Lord made a sacred covenant to bless Abraham and his faithful posterity to the latest generation. Abraham became a rightful heir, a high priest, holding the right belonging to the fathers. And this right to the priesthood continued on down through the lineage of the faithful according to the appointment of God unto the fathers concerning the seed, as recorded in the book of Abraham and the Pearl of Great Price. The question might be asked, why were certain ones chosen to bear the priesthood and represent God in the earth as his special ministers? The prophet Alma gave this very convincing answer, as recorded in the Book of Mormon. Quote, And this is the manner after which they were ordained being called and prepared from the foundation of the world, according to the foreknowledge of God, on account of their exceeding faith and good works. In the first place, being left to choose good or evil, therefore they, having chosen good and exercising great faith, are called with a holy calling, and thus they have been called to this holy calling on account of their faith. Abraham, therefore, because of his premortal faithfulness, was permitted to be born on earth through the lineage of faithful fathers, also entitled to bear the priesthood. 
having added to his previous good works by proving himself preeminently faithful in all the tests of earth life, the Lord made with him this solemn covenant as recorded in Abraham chapter 3, verses 8, and 9, and 11. My name is Jehovah, and I know the end from the beginning. Therefore my hand shall be over thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and will bless thee above measure, and make thy name great among all nations. And thou shalt be a blessing unto thy seed after thee, that in thy hands they shall bless this ministry and priesthood, bear this ministry and priesthood unto all nations. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed, even with the blessings of the gospel, which are the blessings of salvation, even of eternal life. The Lord renewed this covenant with Isaac, the faithful son of Abraham, and confirmed the blessings of Abraham and Isaac upon Jacob. <clears throat> Jacob was renamed Israel by the Lord, and his posterity had been known as the children of Israel, the chosen people of the Lord. Their special mission is to bear the priesthood and keep alive in the world the knowledge of the true God and the true gospel. The Lord's covenant with Abraham included the promise that in addition to Abraham's direct descendants, all who would receive the gospel from that time forth should also become Abraham's seed by adoption, and his blood should be mixed among the nations to bless them with the privileges of the gospel. The Lord has revealed in our day that we are the children of Israel and are the seed of Abraham. And by virtue of that descent, and by obedience to all the earnestness of the gospel, we are entitled to the blessings of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As le legitimate bearers of the priesthood, we must be strong, strong in righteous living, in the power of the priesthood, and in the realization of our great saving mission to the whole world. The priesthood is worth more to us than any other possession. We who are priesthood bearers have a twofold mission, first to preach the gospel, and secondly to administer its saving ordinances. Our mission is to bring happiness to ourselves, our families, families and to mankind through application of gospel principles in daily living. Our great aim is to obtain eternal life. In, the, in section 86 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord states the following, Therefore saith the Lord unto you, with whom the priesthood hath continued through the lineage of your fathers, for ye are lawful heirs according to the flesh. Therefore your life and the priesthood hath remained and must needs remain through you and your lineage until the restoration of all things spoken by the mouths of the holy prophets since the world began. Therefore blessed are ye if ye continue in my goodness, allied unto the Gentiles, and through this priesthood, a Savior unto my people Israel. Priesthood authority and rights carry covenant obligations. Those ordained to the Aaronic priesthood are to observe the duties of their offices, as given in the covenants. Those ordained to the higher or Melchizedek priesthood enter into a sacred covenant which opens the way for them to inherit all that the Father hath. The new and everlasting covenant is the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and embraces every promise and agreement within the divine plan of life and salvation by which the true believer can be admitted into the celestial family of Christ to inherit all that the Father hath. The Book of Mormon contains the fullness of the gospel, and the law and doctrine given therein become, becomes binding on those who receive it. Through the covenant of baptism, one receives the promise of eternal life on a contingent basis. It opens the door but we must prove ourselves before we gain that great blessing. The law of the Sabbath was given to God's people throughout their generations for perpetual covenants as set forth in Exodus.
and which carried promises of both spiritual and temporal blessings. By the ordinance of the sacrament, members renew their covenants with the Lord and receive again the assurance that by their faith and worthiness will have the Holy Spirit to be with them to bless and guide them to eternal life. Even the word of wisdom was given for a principle with a promise. Now in our temples we learn of the great truths of the gospel. The temple endowment provides information concerning the story of man on earth and the means and methods whereby joy on earth and exaltation in heaven may be obtained. The temple endowment also gives special information relative to the required conduct of man if it is to enjoy the fruits of progression and reach his possible destiny. When men and women are taught that they must keep themselves free from sin, chaste, virtuous, truthful, and unselfish, Moreover, they also taught that they must devote themselves and all that they have to the great cause of truth, to the teaching of the everlasting gospel to their fellow men. Those who receive their endowments and obtain the high knowledge make covenants with God that they will observe the instructions given and carry them out in their daily lives. It is also explained that failure to carry out the promises made in the temples will be punished of God, but the great blessings will follow those who accept the truth, practice it, and live the gospel as they should. Perhaps the most glorious of the temple ordinances are those that seal husband and wife and children to one another for time and eternity. According to the gospel, the marriage relation does not necessarily cease with death. On the contrary, it may continue beyond the grave. Such a union or sealing for time and eternity may be performed only by the special authority possessed, possessed alone by the president of the church. Now, he may and does delegate this authority to others so that appointed temple workers or others so receiving that power from the president may perform ordinances in the temples of God. The temples are, are means whereby every member of the church, by righteous conduct and sufficient age, may receive precious endowments and may be kept in a refreshed memory of the great plan of our Father for our salvation and exaltation. Let me conclude, my brothers and sisters, that we must never be careless about the sacred and eternal nature of the covenants that we enter into in the temples. Unfortunately, some individuals have not been fully truthful when they were interviewed for the temple recommends. And unfortunately, also, some priesthood leaders have not been as thorough and as careful as they should have been in conducting these interviews. And some people have gone to the temples unworthily. And of course, they have placed their eternal future in jeopardy as a result of that. Let me just share with you a message that is very meaningful. It has to do with a brother who fell in love with a beautiful young lady, took her to the temple, was sealed to her for time and all eternity, and then he became careless. And he fell into serious transgression and was excommunicated from the church. A divorce followed. Later on, his former spouse applied for a cancellation of her temple sealing to him so that she could be sealed to another. And he was contacted to see if he consented to or objected to the cancellation. He replied in this manner. He wrote a longhand letter, wrote it in, in longhand, several pages. He said, began by saying, yes, I do consent. Why? Because I want to see my former wife obtain the happiness that she's entitled to. And for quite a few paragraphs, 
he lauded the virtues of his dear former spouse. He said, why did I do what I did to her and to our son? He said, only because I became careless. I listened to the voice of the tempter, and he took over. He said, I'm, I do not feel that I can ever be forgiven for what I have done to my wife and son. And he signed that statement, a broken-hearted man, and signed his name to it. Brothers and sisters, we have our free agency, but none of us have our free agency to determine the consequences of the choices that we make because we will be held accountable and responsible for our actions. I leave you my testimony, my brothers and sisters, that this church is led by a prophet of God. Other prophets of God at his side who are sustained as prophets, seers, and revelators. Let us listen to our prophet's voice. Let us be faithful and true to the covenants we enter into. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Only the world could be as enthused and as excited as Elder Richards. I, I feel out of breath already. <laughs> Some weeks ago in the summer heat of Boston... Two men worked vigorously and perspired mightily to construct displays for the American Bicentennial. One stopped to mop his brow and asked the other, Do we really have to go through this every 200 years? <laughs> the correct answer, of course, is that we have not celebrated often or deeply enough the birth of this promised land, this choice and beautiful and still young land, which we possess as the Lord's gift in freedom and joy just as long as we serve him. Boston is a proper place to begin. Boston, in fact, is a very proper place. We who have prayed, preached, and tracted in lovely New England did not find it all that formal. It is a charming place with friendly, wonderful people, and just now, a very successful baseball team. It has a melting pot of names like Petroselli, Lynn, Rice, Carlton Fisk, and a thinking Polish player known as Yaz, for Yastrzemski. And on all sides, the where it happened on precious of precious American tradition. Indeed, it has been just over 200 years since a better-than-average silversmith on a black horse made history, as Longfellow, Longfellow later recorded. He said, and I quote, the fate of a nation was riding that night, the spark struck out by that steed in its flight, a cry of defiance and not of fear, and the midnight message of Paul Revere. That's the way it was from Boston to Lexington to Concord, and the war for independence and liberty began. Most of all, it was for people, men and women of courage and vision and faith, Strengthened by God as a part of his plan, who struggled, froze, starved, and when necessary, died, that these free states in union might be born. In Thomas Jefferson's incisive words, and I quote, 
to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitled them, end of quote. It was worth a lot to the new Americans of that hour to beget the nation, worth all they had, all they were, and all that uh, they had dreamed. What is it worth today to you and to me? and especially to us as Latter-day Saints who alone know what the Lord is doing to assert our free agency toward the fulfilling of his plan. As you decide, let me suggest an exciting tour for you. Go if you can, and if you cannot, then make the trip in your mind's eye or from your study or your armchair or your library. But go. Go to Charlestown and Breeds Hill, to Washington's Crossing, Brandywine Creek, Saratoga, to the great courthouse and a dozen more, and to King's Mountain and Cowpins and Gulliford Courthouse on the road to Yorktown, where it finally ended. Ask yourself along the way who these people were and where they got their vision, and listen intently for a drummer boy tapping out a song that is two centuries older than George M. Cohan. Give a thought as well to a lad aged 21 who re regretted that he had but one life to give to his country, and a 20-year-old French major general who came 3,000 miles to secure the final victory. And if you are traveling, when you come to one of those two numerous claims that George Washington slept here, and you kind of hope, if so, the sheets have been changed and that modern plumbing has been installed, Pause to remember that there really was such a man as George Washington, sometimes disliked but respected, gladly followed, and superbly there when we needed him most, to lead in carrying out the plan of the Lord in the founding of America. Childless, the Virginia planter today has 220 million living children. You and I are among them. God had set him apart and lifted him up. Carry on with me then to Philadelphia, to the year 1787, gathered to frame a constitution in cramped and overheated quarters. Delegates from most of the 13 sovereign states struggle through the summer months to produce a document upon which a free nation might be built. Fortunately, and it has been said by those not of our faith, they achieved a constitution and a bill of rights which far exceeded the best that could come from these men, but it did. More than that, it was and is a living document capable of defending its basic principles but flexible enough to adapt to the needs of this changing and growing United States. You and I are made aware, of course, that there is a better explanation of what really occurred. The scriptures tell us, The Lord established the constitution of this land by the hands of wise men whom I have raised up unto this very purpose and redeemed the land by the shedding of blood. The land was redeemed, indeed, by thousands killed and wounded along the way at Germantown, at Bemis Heights, and Charleston, and so many other places in, American, in the American Revolution. President Brigham Young spoke for himself and for every living prophet who has addressed the question since when he said, and I quote, The signers of the Declaration of Independence and the framers of the Constitution were inspired men from on high to do that work, end of quote. An objective study of the delegates involved, their fears, their limitations, vested interest, and the like, 
make it clear that they were not the sort of men whom we usually think of as prophets. Nonetheless, they were inspired, and the Constitution they provided can be designated accurately as a divine document. But even a divine Constitution requires something further. It demands a kind of people who will, by their very natures, receive and respect such a Constitution and function well within the conditions it establishes. Where indeed shall we find such people today? I recall one. It was in a concentration camp I helped liberate during World War II as we blew the lock off the door and tried to assist the miserable and the painful inside. I was interrupted by a tap on my boot and found, wallowing in the mud, a Protestant minister. One of his first requests was, Soldier, do you have a flag? Later, when we retrieved one from the Jeep, I placed it on him, gave it to him on a stretcher, and with tears in his eyes, he said, Thank God you came. Again, the Lord said, Wherefore, this land is consecrated consecrated unto him whom he shall bring. And if it be so that they shall serve him according to the commandments which he hath given, it shall be a land of liberty unto them. As Latter-day Saints, then, we know why some persons came to America and others did not. As someone has said, we haven't done badly for a nation of immigrants. We are immigrants, you and I, because the Lord made immigrants of us and brought us here. We have done well, as well as can be expected, and are richly blessed despite our shortcomings because the Lord has thus far held us up in his hands and worked his purposes, his ultimate purpose through us. Can you understand this is what America is all about? You and I know, and you and I alone really know, the reason for this blessed and beautiful land. In a world where men have given up on this most vital question, we know the purpose of America. For this country did not end in Philadelphia, even if Horace Greeley did mean that city when he urged us to go west. It was a new land, fresh, clean land, unspoiled with a past. America included the frontier. In 1805, the prophet Joseph Smith was born, and he grew up toward adolescence just like the new land. He fitted it. He was young, clean, unspoiled, a lad without a past, kneeling in a grove. This pristine land, this innocent young man, and thus the Lord reached out and kept his promise. He established his conditions over centuries. You see, God has time. His plan made it possible for the holy priesthood and the church to be restored upon the earth, the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but only in America. Can you understand the way God has worked? And if you do, will you join me this day in committing yourself to preach the message of the Lord's glorious achievement in America and to teach it as missionaries wherever the opportunity allows? This is a time when you and I can afford to be patriotic in the best sense of that term. There is reason to be proud that we live in an established land and that has been conditioned by the Lord so that his gospel can be restored. The purpose of America was to provide a setting wherein that was possible. All else takes its power from that one great central purpose. May I commend to you Mark E. Peterson's great book, The Great Prologue. Read it in connection with your scriptures and give 
greater light on history and purpose. As some of you know, I've never been committed or counted much as a mathematician. Nevertheless, I believe that I can set in sequence the steps the Lord has used in his plan. First, there was selecting and bringing the people. The next step was establishing a free nation. The third was inspiring a divine constitution. The fourth was opening the American frontier, new land, fresh and clean. The fifth step was calling young Joseph Smith to become a prophet in such a little time, God's prophet, seer, and revelator, and later his martyr. Let me add one final stop to your American journey. The place, Arlington National Cemetery in Washington, D.C., the tomb of the the America's unknown soldier. Today, the remains of three servicemen from three wars lie there. The inscription reminds us, here rests in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. There are, in addition, 4,724 other unknown servicemen buried in Arlington and all across the nation and the world. I have seen the crosses, row upon row, marking the places where lie America's honored dead, literally in the thousands. What did it cost them that this nation might remain the land of liberty? How shall we honor them, you and I? In two ways, it seems to me. First, by striving to make our citizenry the righteous people the Lord requires of us. And second, by telling that story of what the Lord has done for you and me in this great church and why. Oh, beautiful for patriot dream that sees beyond the years. Thine alabaster cities gleam undimmed by human tears. America, America, God shed his grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. May that song be in our heart and be our prayer for fulfillment. I humbly pray as I bear witness to these truths and add my testimony that God lives, that Jesus is the Christ, and here sits his prophet. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.